Welcome to the Alpha Female. This show is brought to you by doTERRA Essential Oils. As an essential oil educator, I partnered with doTERRA in 2016 to diversify my income with them. I was drawn to the oil a few years before when I was diagnosed with MS and gifted an introductory kit with lemon, peppermint, and lavender essential oil. At the time, as I was learning to live with MS, I knew I needed to get better quality and quantity of sleep. So I started using lavender in my Epsom salt baths every night to signal to my body that it was time to go to sleep and the rest is history. I educated myself on the potency purity testing... You are listening to the Alpha Female Podcast, episode 186. All links and show notes can be found over at robinbaldwin.com forward slash podcast. Today on the show, we have Julia Nickel. Julia is the founder and owner of Intuition Parenting Support Services. She supports families in so many ways as a gentle sleep consultant, a birth postpartum and sibling doula, a birth story listener, and a Reiki practitioner. Can you envision life with some or all of these offerings? Julia daydreams of a norm where new families are not only celebrated with gifts, but also with much needed services that nurture the body, mind, and soul. Julia lives in Russell, Ontario, just outside of Ottawa with her husband and two children aged four and seven who are constant inspiration for her work. She loves to be outdoors as much as she can, forest bathe, dive into a book, and get creative cooking up delicious and nourishing meals. She supports families in the Ottawa and surrounding areas as well as virtually. So I had Julia on the show in the birth story listener function and I thought it was amazing. So we're wrapping up this fertility and fertility pregnancy series and I thought this was a great way to kind of end end, end it all um, before getting back to other topics. So I want to put a disclaimer on this episode. If you are pregnant um, or a mama-to-be and um, you're getting close to your due date, I would recommend not listening to this episode. So I had a very traumatic birth and uh, a lot of complications post, and we get into that um, in this episode. So while I do really recommend you know, understanding all the intricacies of birth and especially whether you're having a hospital or home birth or what could happen, you know, so that when things do happen, you know how to make decisions um, and you know how to advocate for yourself. However, I do believe that you need to stay in um, a great mental state and listening to other traumatic experiences doesn't always serve us. So I'll just put that disclaimer on this episode. So who is this episode for? This is for someone who has gone through a traumatic experience, no matter how big or small it may seem. Trauma is 
We'll press the call button. Okay, we are recording. All righty then. So this is about an hour session typically, and I'll start by just giving you a bit of a foundation for what we'll do through the session to give you a bit of an idea. So the idea of birth story medicine is that the medicine is within the storyteller and this evening that's you. So you'll be the storyteller and I'll be the one guiding you by asking questions and it'll be a bit interesting. It'll be different than how you've told the story in the past. Um, probably very different from how you've told it to anyone. You'll give a really brief overview and then we'll dive really deep into one moment. So it's good to know that from the beginning because every detail in your story is so important. And I had the pleasure, obviously, of reading your blog because you put that out to the world. So your readers are able to know the the whole story, which I now get to know as well. And I know you wrote that pretty early on in your your parenting journey. So I'm I'm looking looking back hearing shifts. And and I wrote it, let's see, I wrote it um, August 13th. Okay. So that would have been one, two, they were two weeks old. Two weeks old. Yeah. And I think we had just been um, I don't know if I wrote it while I, I think I wrote it while I was in the hospital so that I didn't forget any details. And then I, yes. I published it when we came home. So I literally wrote it on my phone. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it's that first retelling. It's that real raw kind of, yeah, I loved reading it. Mm-hmm. So for tonight, it's a bit different and I'll ask you questions. I may have to interrupt. I may ask questions and I might rephrase and ask them in different ways you're never doing anything wrong. I'm just kind of, there's a process that I will guide us through and you'll just, you're along for the ride. So you just say what comes to mind. You can be super present. There's no wrong answers. I'll be writing notes. So don't be offended if my head's down (laughs) in my paper (laughs) because I'll be writing some notes. Um, Yeah. So what I really like to start with is to set an intention for change so we can have a shared intention and know what your hopes are out of the session. So if this birth story listening session were fruitful to you, if it was everything you would hope it would be, what I would want to know from you is how will you know that it was useful? Like what would feel different at the end of it? My objective in going back and looking at my birth story is to heal the parts that are coming up right now. And I'm wanting to place blame. Um, I'm having trouble moving forward. I just want to, you know, place blame find answers for why things happened and then be an advocate of change. I was talking Mm -hmm. to my therapist about this. I'll give a bit Mm -hmm. of backstory. Good. And, you know, why does someone revisit a board story? Why does someone try to process the trauma? And she said, your nervous system hasn't been able to complete a cycle. You were in, um, fight and flight mode while you're there because you're literally your life was in danger and you haven't been able to complete that cycle because you immediately went into motherhood. Yes. Um, Yeah. And whenever I go through something, I've gone through calling off a wedding in my past. I've gone through an MS diagnosis. 
after mm-hmm. I've processed it and learned a lesson, I then want to teach it. And mm-hmm. so I, I know that I still need to process, but I yes. want my birth story and what happened to me and the lessons that can be found within it. I want it to eventually be useful. So I want okay. it to eventually be useful to the world. Um, whether it's, you know, making change in the hospital setting or simply making change with the practitioners that were involved in the birth. Um, I want that eventually, but I know that I need to heal and complete the nervous system cycle that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a long winded answer. No, that's wonderful. It's very, it shines what you do and how everything you've learned, everything you've done through your life so far that you're able to help others in one way or another with those journeys. And, but you're being very cognizant that you can't do that yet. And you have phases to go through still for yourself Mm -hmm. and you'll know when you're there Mm -hmm. and sharing the journey of getting there is also helpful to the people who look up to you. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, all right. So we'll dive right in to the overview I mentioned. So this would be kind of like a Coles note version or like a bullet point version. It's to give listeners kind of that overview to know, you know, we can't really dive deep until we have this like kind of aerial view, I would say, of what what went on for you. And with birth story medicine, I know your journey has been long with infertility to fertility and there's been so much. So it can be, people will often draw from pregnancy, trying to conceive, postpartum. It can be postpartum complications. It can be anything. So you can choose to focus on what you'd like. something and I'll help you pick what that is. So don't worry yet. yet. Yeah. So I'll do, I'm pretty good at factually doing a synopsis of the birth story and birth complications because there was so much. And so maybe I'll mm. just stick with that because wonderful. it can become yeah. really long. Um, but we were um, slated to give birth to the twins August 9th was our due date. And through a series of negotiations with our OB, we were asked to induce by week 38 because there's a risk of stillbirth in twins after week 37. And I worked up until week 37. So I went on mat leave and I wanted one week to myself. And then I was okay with a an induction during week 38. I think it was 38 and like five, five days. Mm -hmm. So we went into the hospital and, um, we started an induction, which involves oxytocin. Um, and it wasn't working. My body wasn't ready to give birth. Um, and those are keywords. And Mm -hmm. after 13 hours of laboring, Nothing was happening. So the OB uh, unhooked me, said, get a few hours of sleep and we'll start again in the morning. And from there, 
we started again the next day. And after a few hours of nothing progressing, they broke the water on twin A. Um, our daughter, Alora, was the presenting twin. And then things went fast and furious. So my, um, my, um, my pain went from, it was one to two the day before, and it immediately skyrocketed to 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't breathe through the contractions. I wasn't able to get a break in between. And also the hospital wanted me to have an epidural in case something happened in the future. So in case something mm-hmm. happened, an epidural was recommended to be cited and tested, which means actually administering the the pain medication. Um, in case something happened, like if an emergency C-section needed to happen, they needed that cited and tested. Um, mm-hmm. Because the pain was so intense, I opted for the epidural, which meant I wasn't able to labor the way that I wanted to. Um, also in a twin birth, because of the risk of complications, in a hospital birth, they make they make you give, <sighs> they make you give birth in the OR. So after laboring for a bit with the epidural, I was checked and I was at 10 centimeters and they said, you know, we'll labor for another hour and then we'll bring you into the OR so you can start pushing. So I was moved to the OR and, um, I pushed for an hour and then the doctor came in and immediately started a forcep delivery. (laughs) And... I received an episiotomy and twin A, Alora, was birthed via, she wasn't uh, the right way. I don't know if it's like sunny side up or or not, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't the right way. So when she was turned and pulled out via forceps, she bruised my coccyx on the way out. Okay. Um, yeah. So the pain, pain one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she was birthed that way, and then she was placed on my chest, and immediately the doctor started birthing twin B, our little boy, via forceps as well. And um, I shared that my husband witnessed when he came back into the room because he was going off with the babies to the ICU um, to just monitor them and make sure they were following our birth wishes. And when Mm -hmm. he came back in at one point, he watched the OB kind of violently ripping my placenta out. So that happened and I hemorrhaged whether or not I hemorrhaged (laughs) first and that caused the placenta Mm -hmm. to be delivered rapidly. I don't know. Um, I, 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 I'm not privy to those details. Yeah. Placenta came out. I hemorrhaged um, I was given medication immediately to stop the bleeding and we were wheeled back into the labor and delivery suite. And that's where the complications began. Mm-hmm. So I hemorrhaged again and I lost consciousness in the labor and delivery suite. Um, twice that night, um, I had retained placenta, um, which caused problems for the next week. So we were in the hospital for a week dealing with retained placenta. I had a manual extraction as well as a DNC, lots of blood transfusions, iron transfusions, antibiotics, and finally we were released. We we went home 
And then I continued bleeding and passing clots. We had to return to the hospital with the babes and (sighs) spent another week in the hospital where they found more retained placenta. Um, and I received more transfusions, more antibiotics. Finally, I was told they believed everything was removed, but I now was dealing with something called an AVM or an arterial veno like malformation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't want to do anything right then because there was so much trauma that had gone on. They wanted to wait, I believe at least six weeks before mm-hmm. they did an ultrasound um, or an MRI to see if it had resolved on its own. And thankfully it did. So, Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so that is kind of the end of the, the birth complications is six weeks later, I thankfully did not have to have any more procedures done and wow. I was able to start healing. Wow. So I think that's the best synopsis, which really wasn't that concise. <laughs> no, it was perfect. It, there's so much to say. You can't mm-hmm. leave any of those details out one after the other. There's something big happening mm-hmm. that has impacts and that you could be carrying with you now. So mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry you went through all of that. I appreciate it. Okay. So I talked to you about how we dive deep into one of those moments, which might be hard to choose because there's so many that might still be feeling quite raw and that you might be carrying with you. So I will use a bit of visualization if that helps you. Um, So you can close your eyes if it's something that helps you as well. But what I'll lay out in front of you is if you were to create or someone were to give you a photo album of the entire process. And in a photo album, it's all still shots. You can't, there's no, you know, little films and it's all just these little quick moments. So if you're flipping through from the beginning to the end and you're just slowly moving through the pages, some of those pages, some of those mini moments will be wonderful. Like the moment, you know, you met Alora and the moment you met Ryland, I'm sure there's also some tainted feelings to those moments, but in every snapshot, there's going to be, you know, some positives and some really beautiful feelings. And some pages are probably too hard that you might skip them. Sometimes you might even push the thoughts away because it's almost too heavy and I can't, you know, I can't even go there yet. So you're flipping through and what you want to choose is the one moment that at least for today brings almost the heaviest feelings, the most, the hardest feelings of perhaps like you mentioned, shame and betrayal. And, and it will be that moment that's really calling to you for attention. Um, or like I said, the moment that you can hardly think about. So you can take a moment to picture it and flip through the book and and really let it kind of sink from your body and your heart and see what, what's calling out to you that we can work on today specifically. So I immediately see um, it's flipping between the first and the second time that I lost consciousness. Okay. So the first time Mike and a nurse were trying to get me up out of the bed, I was determined to shower. So alpha female personality came out and 
you know, my legs had just started regaining sensation Mm -hmm. and I wanted to stand and walk to the bathroom immediately and shower. Yeah. And, um, Mike had one arm, the nurse had the other and they were, they didn't want me to walk. They were, (laughs) they were like, you can't walk. You've just had an epidural. So they were going to sit me in a wheelchair and wheel me over. And then Mike was going to help me into the shower. And Mm -hmm. the minute they got me upright and as they were transferring me from the bed to the chair, I lost consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I woke up having soiled myself because the medication that they give you in the OR to stop the bleeding causes uncontrollable diarrhea. Yeah. And so I am feeling helpless and then mm-hmm. shame that I've soiled myself and a nurse is literally wiping my bottom like a newborn, yeah. like a newborn baby is the, the way that I described it. Yeah. And I wasn't able to take care of myself and I was very angry and frustrated that yeah. I wasn't okay. And then the second time, exact same feelings, you know, maybe an hour or two later, I lost consciousness again. This time I'm, I'm in the bed and we had been left alone and Mike was taking care of the two babies because I wasn't strong enough to get out of the bed. And he had to put the babies down and he tells me they were screaming and run to press the emergency button to call in the nurses. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet again, like I'm still soiling myself for like probably the next like two or three hours and I'm not strong enough to get to the washroom. So they just keep like removing bed pads. Um, and I could, I could feel myself losing consciousness, but I couldn't do anything about it. And the nurse, I could feel the nurses in the room. I could hear them talking to me, but I couldn't say anything coherent back. And so I was really frustrated and mad at my body that this was happening again and that I had no control. There's a, there's a theme here of not having control. Yeah. I'm seeing that. And of course, with what I read from your MS diagnosis and, you know, being mad at our bodies with autoimmune, we go through that battle. Mm -hmm. It's, it's there's like so many related pieces (sighs) okay so I saw a lot of emotion with Mike having to put the babies down and Mm. and having to press emergency so within those two stories the process that we'll go through to achieve the goal works the best if we we will hone in on an exact still shot. So from hearing you, that's an example of one that you might choose from that, from those two stories. But I want it to be obviously your choice, but that's an example so you can understand how like it would be this if you had to take a picture of the scene, it would be the a one moment in all of that hard few hours. Yeah, that probably the most. The emotion pain. that you pick up on is, um, and I shared it in 
the blog post is the reason why we had a hospital birth is that Mike witnessed several home births gone wrong and he witnessed women hemorrhaging. And so his, his non-negotiable for us was to have a hospital birth in case that happened. And then it happened. So his biggest fear happened in front of his eyes. And so that's where a lot of the emotion is, is that it wasn't just my birth story. It just, it wasn't just my birth complications. Like Mike was there with me having to take care of two twin newborns while his wife was um, potentially losing her life. Yeah. So that's where the emotion comes from is that I, I could have lost my life. And I don't think I've actually ever really said that. I know Mike, I know Mike says it when he tells the story. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, saying I hemorrhaged is a nicer way of saying Mm -hmm. I could have died. Yeah. How does it feel to say it now? Relief that I didn't. Yeah. Like I was very grateful and I shared this as well. Grateful for modern medicine that I, you know, they were able to save my life. Mm -hmm. And that medication existed to stop the hemorrhaging as fast as possible. That, you know, an OB came in right away, especially the second time and started removing blood clots Mm -hmm. um, and retained placenta from my uterus immediately. So I am am grateful for the ability, like the ability to save someone. I always Mm -hmm. return back to did actions that led up to those moments contribute to it. And I mm-hmm. don't, and I don't have those answers and I, mm-hmm. I don't like playing the what if game, but absolutely. If but your mind goes there, my mind goes there because I'm not the first person to experience a negative birth experience in a hospital setting. And so I can't mm-hmm. help but think that things led up to that moment that could have been avoided. And I never would have had to go through this. Yeah. So it's a duality of gratitude and frustration. That's hard to feel those two feelings at the same time, sometimes because they aren't necessarily opposing, but, it's hard to tease apart. And when I first started going to talk therapy after calling off my wedding in 2012, I identified that I have no ability to separate anger and sadness. So when I'm, when I'm angry, I cry. Okay. And so it's the same thing. I live and do like feeling dual feelings consistently and don't, Mm-hmm. don't have the ability to like feel one and then feel the other. It's always together. And if it's so anger it's like and sadness, competing. yeah, if it's anger and sadness, I cry because the sadness mm-hmm. one overpowers the angry or that's mm-hmm. just my reaction. Okay. Cause it's the same thing here. I'm angry at how mm-hmm. I was treated and I'm sad 
about what happened. Yeah. And when I experience sadness, I cry. That's my release. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't necessarily sit and, and allow myself to feel the anger. I just immediately like feel it all together. Yeah. I understand. And that it must be hard because you want to break it down and be nice if we could focus on one emotion at a time and work our way through it. But it's not that simple, is it? Mm. Okay. Thank you for for explaining the background of, well, that and many reasons of why it's so impactful. I'm going to ask you, and it might be hard. I feel like it might be hard. So if it's too hard, you can tell me. And anything, if there's anything I ask you to do that feels uncomfortable or too uncomfortable, you, you have to be honest and tell me. There's a reason why we tend to do this step. Our birth stories are in the past. Obviously, we can't change anything about them. We That's not the intention here, right? But to bring forth the change that we want to feel inside in the present one step that we do go through is to talk about that hardest moment as if it's the present tense so if you're choosing one of those moments where you've lost consciousness of course there's a moment in there where time and space are gone but leading up to it and right after it if you could describe you know I'm trying to get out of the wheelchair. I'm standing up and Mike has my arm. If you could talk to me about one of those moments as if it's happening in the present. If you can handle that right now, you, you can let me know and stop at any time if you can't. Yeah, I should be. Okay. So I'm lying in the hospital bed and I start to feel really dizzy and I'm watching... Mike hold one of our babies. He may he might have been changing one or feeding one with um you know, just or just holding them or changing one. And I remember and I'm saying I don't feel well. I feel dizzy. And then I lose consciousness. I hear a lot of voices around me. Someone's pressing and rubbing on my sternum. I have an oxygen mask on my face and the bed is being lowered. So my head is lower than my heart. I wake up. I'm waking up. And I'm being asked my name. Someone's asking me, where am I? And I keep, I keep saying, where are my babies? Are my babies okay? Yeah. And my legs are in stirrups. And the OB is pulling blood clots and matter out of my uterus 
I'm I'm answering the questions. Mm -hmm. Say my name. I say the date. I say that I'm in the hospital, but I keep saying where my babies are. My babies okay? And a nurse has a hand on my head telling me they're okay. That is so much to go through. And that's one little blip of your whole thing. Yeah. So much terrifying feelings that probably felt possibly foreign to just lose consciousness and wake to knowing what's going on and that you need confirmation that everything's okay. And you're worrying about your brand new two babies that you just birthed and everyone's worrying about you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Okay, so we brought ourselves to the present with that. And the reason for that is that, and I've heard a few words from you that I think point to this, but often because something happened to us and because we had to experience something so terrifying and unknown and this all happened to us in the past. So I'll ask you, what does present day, Robin, what does present day you think about herself because that happened to you? What is that? Is there a belief about you in the present day that you're carrying because that happened? And it often will be we may not truly believe it about ourselves. We may in the absolute truth know it's not true, but it might sit there and we might carry it. And often it will be more of a negative feeling and belief. Because this happened to me, I I am I am what? I've been talking lately about how I feel like I was set up to fail. Okay. Um, and I don't feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. I feel like things happened that allowed failure to happen. So Mm -hmm. my breastfeeding journey was impacted. And so I feel like I failed at breastfeeding because of all of Mm -hmm. the birth complications. Mm -hmm. I implications and wide yeah I feel like I wasn't able to have the birth experience that I had hoped for I don't want to say plan because we can I I didn't want to hold Mm -hmm. on to the the birth plan that's why I called it birth wishes but the birth experience that I had wished for so many things happened that I feel like I was set up to fail from being induced to not having a doula to advocate for us Yeah. to, um, 
you know, having a forced delivery forced on us only after, only after an hour of pushing because it was, because it was the obese shift change. So I feel like all of these things happened that set me up to fail and fail is failed having a positive birth experience. Yeah. And so I don't feel that I'm the failure, but I, I had hoped for so many things to happen that didn't happen. And I've had to then adapt, go with the flow, change my wishes. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's the hardest as I feel like I've failed in so many areas. Yeah, I hear you. And to be made to feel like, I feel like I failed when you feel like you're curious about what led to that is, it's really tough to feel that about yourself. But if we, if we go back to your question is, how did you feel in that moment? I can say I felt helpless Mm -hmm. and I felt helpless because I had tried to educate, put all of the right advocacy pieces in place ahead of time Mm -hmm. and none of that mattered. Things were ignored or I felt steamrolled into making decisions that were against my wishes. And so in that moment when I lost consciousness, I felt helpless and I had to rely on others. And as someone who is a type A personality, Mm -hmm. very independent to, to feel helpless again, it's the same thing when I was diagnosed with MS I felt helpless and I regained control by taking care of myself in a new manner. And I couldn't do that immediately because my life was being threatened. So I had to rely on others to take care of me. And Mm -hmm. that's a really hard place to be in. You lost all control in that moment because no matter how hard you could work to put things in place and them still not quite work out the way that you would hope. No matter what you do leading up to it, if you lose consciousness, if we're talking about that exact moment, you're not even present to try to take care of yourself. You can't. And if, let's say I had had um, an unmedicated vaginal birth that resulted in hemorrhaging I would have still felt helpless but I would have known that I was being taken care of and I wouldn't wouldn't be questioning did actions leading up to the birth during the birth cause this to happen so Mm -hmm. there's so many things that happened against my wishes that I can't help but question them um and potentially get angry if they did lead to me feeling that helpless and putting me mm-hmm. in that position. I don't know if I would feel this way if everything had gone 
um, according to plan. Uh, mm-hmm. Plan is in quotation marks. Of course. And the hardship lies there that there's no way of knowing. Of knowing. Yeah. How is this? I'm hearing a bit of it in what you're carrying. How is this living now present in your life? So whenever you think about that particular moment of knowing that you were slipping away or knowing that something was off and Mike's having to press the panic button and the babies are needing him and everything's a mess and you're losing control. Whenever you think about this moment now, how is it a problem for you today? Because this happened, how, like, how is that a problem for you now? If you could describe that for me, I'm hearing a bit of it, but I'd love to hear. It manifested into creating control. Okay. So it manifested into, I needed to ensure the house was clean all the time. Mm-hmm. I needed to make sure I was always doing the laundry. And this is like the first three months. Yeah. It manifested into, I needed to take care of the babies how I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed to control what help I got and how I got it. And so... Yeah, it it manifested into me trying to hold on to control as tightly as I could because I didn't have Yes, absolutely. And you say in the first few months, so do you feel as if you've recognized that and things have shifted to a, a lesser place of needing the control to feel safe? Or is it still very present? the control around cleanliness has always been there for me. And I wouldn't say it's always about control. I just know personally, I like a clean house. Um, because I, I thrive in that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so it showed up knowing that I couldn't do it myself. And so, you know, I had hired a postpartum doula. Mm-hmm. And when she came in, she figured out after a few days exactly what I liked and she mm-hmm. would do it without being asked. So, mm-hmm. you know, the dishwasher would be unloaded and reloaded. The floors would be mopped. She would make me a salad for lunch and then play with the babies while I went for a nap. And it was mm-hmm. that just created such calm and peace for me. Because That's I, wonderful. I knew I could relinquish control and someone would take care of things without me mm-hmm. having to, you know, delegate or dictate things. Wonderful. Yeah. It shows up now um, with my husband being a stay-at-home dad mm-hmm. with allowing him to do things his way without me um, trying to change that. And that is a work in progress. So that is what's showing okay. up presently. Okay. Is, you know, if a baby's crying and I know they're hungry and he's just consoling them instead of feeding them, 
I, I snap and tell him, you know, give Rylan a bottle or give Alora a bottle. Yeah. And so that the control is showing up that way. I'm going to use um, a way of looking at it, which I think you're already doing really well. So I think it'll work well and I think we'll run with it because we're calling it the control. And often when I go through this phase, people would label themselves with the problem. I'm being controlling. I'm controlling. Mm. And and you're already calling it the control, which is really great. So mm. we talk about that in a way where instead of labeling ourselves, you know, this is showing up today. I'm I'm controlling. I'm being controlling. We take it out of ourselves and instead it's the control. And you almost could picture, you know, you can take it out as a box and it's like this is the control and I'm gonna I'm gonna set it over here. So I like working with that and I feel like you're already on the route to having nice wording around that. So I'm going to go with this one and the neat way, the neat thing about setting it over there and removing it from ourselves is we can have a conversation with it almost and say, and kind of inspect it and wonder, you know, how often is the control showing up in a day and why is it there and what are its intentions and why does it come to visit so often? And, and in, th- in that way, we work towards finding ways to help the part, you know, like you said, some of it is with you and wanting a clean house and that that's comforting. There's nothing wrong with some of the ways that we, we like to control our environment and feel that that helps us feel stable and be able to work well. But the ones that we kind of know we want to work on, which you've identified as being calling Mike out on, on how, you know, things could be done and how, and, and tripping him, you know, before he might realize it, which is, I will tell you very, very common in partnership. So, um, but I will ask you, we will put the box of control over there and I will ask you and we'll, we'll ask some questions to it. So how often would you say the control visits in any given day? So before we go into that, I also want to layer in that Mm -hmm. because I was pregnant and gave birth in a pandemic where things are out of my control, I, I am constantly thinking about focusing on you can only control what you can control. Absolutely. And so that's almost like, um, a soothing technique Mm -hmm. that's also amplified in this time. Yes, absolutely. Because I can't control lockdowns. I can't Mm -hmm. control any of the, the rules and the regulations that are happening, but I can control how clean the house is. I can control laundry always being done and being put away. I can, Mm -hmm. I can control feeding the babies. Um, Mm -hmm. and I mentioned that things happened that impacted my breastfeeding journey. And now the babies are being bottle fed and I won't get into that because that's a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. But because I wasn't, uh, I had to end my breastfeeding journey early. I now have 
control over the bottle feeding. Yes. I still want to feel like I am taking care of the babies to the utmost of my ability. So yeah. So, you know, telling my husband, you need to give a bottle now is another way of me exuding control. Um, so the control also shows up with, it's mostly household tasks Mm -hmm. because they're so simple to identify. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's usually things aren't being done my way, but also acknowledging that there are so many things that are happening that are not being done my way that I'm grateful for. So Mm -hmm. for example, my husband will just start cooking dinner without being Mm -hmm. asked to, or asking me what's for dinner or he, like he just knows I've done the meal planning for the week. I have the recipes laid out on the counter and he just grabs a recipe and starts cooking. So Mm. And I, sometimes he grabs the wrong recipe and I, I may get, I may get frustrated. I may say something because <laughs> it's not being done my way, but I then eventually relinquish the control. Mm-hmm. So it's a learning process for me, knowing that I can be taken care of, that I can accept yeah. help, that I don't have to do everything myself. Um, having a, a doula here was an example of relinquishing control Mm -hmm. and asking for help. We had a nanny come in for a few months, um, for two hours every day. Um, that was hard though, because I would get asked every five minutes what to do. Yeah. And that was exhausting. Yes. Um, and I had listed out all of the things that I needed help with. Um, and the days where she would just work through the list and do one thing after another without asking, I felt such ease. Of course. Um, so I don't love the control. I don't love controlling things. I love being taken care of. Mm -hmm. I love being able to relinquish control and ask for help. Um, but I feel like I, I can't always. Okay. Because I don't know if there's like a less than feeling there. Like I'm less than a mother or less than an alpha female or less than whatever label Mm -hmm. you want to put on. I know I can't do it all. I know that having twins is crazy. (laughs) I know that healing my body after this birth is going to take a while that I can't snap my fingers and just be okay, which is frustrating because I was able to heal my body after my MS diagnosis so quickly. Yeah. When I look back on that journey, like within six months, I was already seeing a massive change in my health and I'm not seeing that this time around because I just physically don't have the time to do all the things that I I could be doing. And so there's control, there's the control there, controlling my healing. I can't, I can't control the healing 
that I would like to have at the speed I would like to have at the outcome that I would like to have. I'm having to go with the flow. So it shows up in so many areas and what I'm hearing is so there's so many what it's so hard to describe, but that like there's valid and valuable reasons for why you go there for certain scenarios and yet you're having and you're finding some great exceptions. So you're finding that the control is there and the control is there and but okay, that's like great that he made supper and the control is there and control is there, but okay, great. I can finally trust this doula and, and they're not asking me all the time. And I like the moments where you're able to relinquish and it start to feel okay to do that. Those are the really good, like that's, that's the medicine for the control. And that takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time to trust someone to do something and it, and it takes time to learn that they might not do it exactly how we would do it, but we know we can't like there's images, beautiful images drawn of a mother, you know, holding the plate with the supper and holding the toddlers pulling at the leg. And she has like eight, 10 arms around her body. We know that that's not possible. So you found exceptions where you have found a way to get past the hump of that really hard, gross inside feeling of like, but if I just, and let it go, right? So that's really good to see. The hardest thing that comes up is the criticism. Okay. And From who? From me. And then I get mad at myself for being that way. Okay. For self-criticizing? No, for criticizing others. So criticizing my husband for making the wrong recipe. Mm. The Tuesday recipe was made on Monday night. Uh And in my perfect world, he didn't follow my plan. And then instead of just saying thank you and being grateful that he made dinner, I criticize and say something to make him feel bad. And Uh And then... he gets frustrated. I get mad at myself. <laughs> and yeah. The cycle. Yeah. yeah. And then the same thing, you know, the, the nanny comes in and asks a million one questions because she wants to p- please me. And I get annoyed that I'm being asked a million and one questions that I can't just go and be by myself and have a moment to myself to de-stress that my, you know, nervous system is just firing again. And I, criticize and I speak bad or I criticize the nanny behind her back to my husband instead of just being grateful for the help that we have. Um, and then I I get mad at myself for being that way. Um, Okay. With so many layers to how we feel and how you, yeah, how you're feeling. I get it. And if I go back to the birth story, Mm -hmm. I, I haven't been able to just be grateful that my life was saved. I go back and I criticize the Uh things that didn't happen. So it's, it's a weird cycle that's happening now. And when I think of the birth story. Okay. It is, it's related. And would you say, or maybe we'll use 
a number. So if you had to go from zero to 10, 10 being there's no self-criticism, there's no criticism of others, the cycle doesn't exist. There's appreciation in the moment without first having to force yourself to get there. There's the control just like is lifted away. Like you see the thing happening and only those positive little thoughts that you do still have, but you have to work hard to, it's all meshed up, right? So that's the 10, that's the, you know, control's gone. And zero is just out of, out of control, control where, so where, and I know there's so many examples, but where on an overall basis would you say you sit? from zero to 10. I think the objective of healing my birth story is because I want to get to the 10, Mm -hmm. but I don't want it to be toxic positivity. Absolutely. Where you just focus on the positives and ignore the negatives because you just want to get to the good place and you just want to get to the other side. And that's why I want to address and figure out the negatives that happened to me so that in the future, it might not happen to someone else Mm -hmm. because from hearing this, they know to recognize what's happening to them in the moment and know how to advocate for themselves better than I was able to. And so I want to get to the 10 but I, I know that the criticism exists for a reason. It has a purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, criticism of my husband making the wrong dinner does not have a purpose. <laughs> um, so it's, a, it's allowing yourself to apply it to the quote unquote right scenarios. Yeah. And it, it needs letting to... it exist where it's, where it's meant to exist to mm-hmm. have that critical outlook and not be in denial and just say, Oh, right. What put it all under the rug. And yeah. Like, Oh, I have, I have two beautiful babies mm-hmm. and be done with it. Absolutely. No, something no. happened yeah. that shouldn't have happened. Um, yes. I know in my gut and I can't just positivity my way to the 10. No, um, it's not the way. So I would say I'm a five. I'm okay. literally in the middle of the road. Same thing. Like I feel anger and sadness. I feel, yeah. I feel the duality of the negative parts of my story and the positives. Absolutely. And it's probably okay to be stuck in the middle for a little while even if it's painful and you don't know what direction to go and you don't know is the anger, the appreciation, which is stronger and which is, which is pulling at you harder. My therapist during our session this week, when I told her we were going to have this conversation, she said, you may, you know, like it's not just going to be a a one-time thing when you're able to completely heal your birth story. Absolutely. Um, but you may feel your nervous system release just a little bit. And so, oh, so I, I get, I like her. I get, I get that, you know, being at a five is totally okay. And maybe I'm at yeah. a 5.5 because my nervous <laughs> system was able to release a little bit more. And that's exactly it. The goal is never 
if you were to say, if I did this one thing tomorrow, I could be at a 10, I would, I would urge you to say, let's go to a 5.5 first because mm-hmm. it has to be baby steps and it has to be inch by inch because the path isn't linear and you don't even know what a 10 looks or feels like. And you know, you don't want to get there by negative means of just ignoring or forgetting. And so getting to the six might take you somewhere different than you could ever imagine. And then at the seven, you're over here and then seven and a half, and you can't believe how you're feeling differently about the birth for seven and a half and about every day when it's brought forward for you. And I wonder if they'll align as, as what this practice and how I'm trained is that we only can have action in the, in the present, obviously. So the things that from the birth that we're carrying and that we want to figure out and we want to go back and we want to study it and we want to understand it, that often the healing of what it's brought to you today, which is the control in ways that you don't necessarily like about yourself right now and feel that are serving you and your family well to work little bit by little bit to heal those things or what you do like you said what you do have control over in a in the positive meaning right like Mm -hmm. i i can work on that and i can for even just choose the one thing of the supper order making um what would you do what could you do tomorrow to get that to the 5.5. I don't know where I heard this or it might've been a conversation that my husband and I were having where we said, we just simply need to write down every single household task and divvy it up. <laughs> so That's that, in my postpartum planning. <laughs> I do that with families. So that, yeah. Um, I'm not trying to do the laundry and the mopping and the cleaning of the kitchen and the cleaning of the bathrooms and the, I think I said laundry already. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of laundry. There's a lot of laundry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and we just have never done that. Um, okay. so it's, it's something as simple as that and just literally taking the time to write it down, having a family meeting. Yeah after the babes have gone to bed and hopefully they won't wake up for a few hours so we can <laughs> just divvy up the task. So I know that my job is not to empty the dishwasher and if it's still full, just let it be full until it's emptied. Yeah. Um, and because it's not in my control box. Um, so I think that's my, from your control box. my one takeaway. <laughs> I like that. We'll remove half of the duties from your control box and the practice in that is being triggered when the dishwasher is still full and the practice is finding the ways and knowing that it's okay that this that this isn't finding a way to in the moment be okay with that and to take a deep breath or whatever it is that helps you and to know that that doesn't equate to sweeping under the rug of the huge things, right? Mm -hmm. The hardest 
thing. And I'll just give my, my husband credit because he deserves it. And husbands mm-hmm. so many times get often overlooked for their role in postpartum. Mm-hmm. But I have an amazing husband. If I ask him to take out the garbage, he will get up and go take out the garbage. Um, so I think that's another reason why the control shows up is that I get frustrated that I have to keep track of all of the things that have to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's a lot of pressure on me knowing that I don't have to do it. If I ask my husband to do it, he will do it, which is mm-hmm. amazing. And I am completely and utterly grateful for that. Um, I get frustrated that I have to be the, you know, the, the conductor of our orchestra and that I have to remember everything. So if I just make a list and he knows Mm -hmm. that these are his tasks and I can take that off of my shoulders and Mm -hmm. take that off of my, like, because I'm using my fight and flight nervous system is activated constantly because I'm doing all these things to make myself feel better. Mm -hmm. So if I take them off of my, list. I wonder if that will provide a little bit more ease to my nervous system. I think that's a really great idea because there's so much that floats around in the head and (laughs) this has to be done. That has to be done. This has to be done. It's tracking, tracking, tracking. And that takes up so much bandwidth. And Mm -hmm. when there's healing that needs to be done and self-care that needs to be done and you described so many things that are on your mind that you're working on. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. It sounds like it's funny to think of something as simple as making a list could make a big impact, but it signifies a lot. It's the significance of deciding that once I write that list and my column's on the left and Mike's column's on the right, that the stuff on the right I'm going to let out of my brain and I'm going to stop worrying about it. And you guys are a team, obviously. And if ever something on his list, he didn't get to and needs help with the communication is there and yeah, he can tell you. And yeah, it's, it's part of it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay. So the control, getting it to a 5.5, I like it. <laughs> and to a six. So you'll be the detective and you'll be, the one for the everyday stuff to pay attention and say, wow, I did this change and I'm working hard at it. And I think I'm at a six. Like I, I got there. That's interesting. Okay. Now like what's the next low hanging fruit? Like we're busy parents of twins. We can't, you know, this isn't about, you know, there's some pretty grandiose things that we can decide we think we need in our postpartum and in this journey early parenting but I want you to pick every time you think you've mastered a new thing is to get to the next hopefully low-hanging fruit hopefully there'll always be something a little next baby step to get you to the 
Okay, I just wanted to pop on quickly before we jump into the interview. As I was editing and listening back to the birth story session, two things really popped up in terms of how control, the control is manifesting in my current life. So, you know, I did a ton of research. Mike and I wrote down all of our birth wishes in terms of what we really wanted the hospital team to honor. And then in case of interventions, what we were okay with and kind of the order. So, you know, if this needed to happen, I was okay with X. And then if X happened, I'd be okay with Y and kind of the, how it would proceed. And that helped me make decisions in the moment. However, it still doesn't stop the fact that I felt out of control and that I was steamrolled into making decisions and things were done faster than uh, necessary, i.e. the induction, the forcep delivery, pulling the placenta out um, forcibly, etc. And so how that's manifesting now in my life is, you know, I didn't have the birth experience that I had hoped for. So now I'm trying to create the nurturing household experience that I, you know, envision and I love, and it's really, really showing up in terms of control. Um, and so I need things done my way so that, you know, I feel good about myself and I feel like I'm being a good mother, a, a good wife, um, et cetera. And so that's very evident to see how it's linked. I didn't really realize how linked it was. And then, you know, why I, I, you could hear it in my voice, how appreciative I am of our doula and how she just came and started doing things and really taking care of me. And that's exactly what I needed. I needed to be taken care of. I needed to relinquish some control. And then you can hear it in my voice, how there was a frustration around our nanny, although I'm receiving help and it's something that I should be amazingly grateful for. There was frustration surrounding it. And it's, um, and it's all, it's all back to the control of losing control of, you know, telling someone what I want and what I need, and then it potentially not being, um, honored. And that is exactly what happened with the birth wishes. You know, I told the hospital staff exactly what I needed and what I wanted, and it wasn't, it wasn't honored completely. There was amazing things that they did honor. I Welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you, Robin. I'm happy to be here. I am so excited to have you on. This is the last um, episode in our kind of fertility pregnancy series before I move on to uh, a new topic, but I kind of wanted to wrap it all up with my birth story and we've recorded separately um, a birth story session. So let's get into some questions to give our audience a bit of perspective. So uh, tell us what is birth story medicine or birth story listening? Sure. So birth story listening is a process that's been developed. I'll tell you a bit about who developed it because she is someone I admire quite a lot. So it's a process that's meant to help 
the birth storyteller transform any feelings or beliefs of failure or guilt or betrayal or any of those really hard, heavy feelings we can carry after our birth, um, any any big emotional birth trauma, and to slowly work to shift it into either a new understanding, um, a new insight, new perspective, kind of some self-acceptance from our story and forgiveness, resolution, and healing, which comes from within. So the healing isn't something that we as birth story listeners bring to you. It's actually within your story and it's within the work that you find it. And once you do find it, the healing can bring love and strength um, and compassion into every aspect of your your everyday life now, rather than thinking of going back. And obviously we can't change our story in the past. Um, but we can we can help ourselves feel a lot of resolution in the present and moving forward. So it was Pam England who created the process. Um, she's written a few really great books, Birthing from Within and a few others. And so she became a nurse midwife in her early 20s and witnessed and was present for and supported many births. And she then uh, became got her master's in psych counseling. And so she's been perfecting and working through this process for over 30 years. And she's been teaching it for 15 years. So I feel very lucky to have trained under her. and. That's a bit about what it is. Yeah. So, um, did you become a doula before a birth story listener? Yes. Okay. Yes. I my my first training was as a postpartum doula. Gotcha. Um, so, in that mm-hmm. work, how did you discover birth story listening? So, as a postpartum doula, we are trained that in certainly one of our first few sessions will often hear a birth story. And it's interesting because we tend as supporters always want to be doing, and we want to be doing, birth doulas have this as well, where we, you think you must be doing something to support. And often the act of just being is is quite supportive. So um, some people call us, you know, to a doula instead of doula and be with the person (laughs) and be present and really listen. So that happens in postpartum support as well, where you know, you want to be helping them and helping with the baby and prepping food. And, and you find yourself sitting on the couch and they're just crying and talking to you. And so to learn to really hold that space and truly listen and maybe be the first person who's listening in a way that isn't trying to interject and offer, you know, that the solutions or the comfort or the reasons or the why, or the kind of very often very painful thing to hear where people say, well, at least you had a healthy baby. And (laughs) <laughs> they'll feel very heard. Um, and so I I knew that that was happening over and over again. And I wanted to do it in a way that could really, really support the, the birthing person. So I found her training and I was so happy to do it. And it was actually with Pam England, it was all virtual. She yeah. lives in the States. And um, yeah, so I, I found it that way and have really enjoyed being able to add that to my offerings. Mm, I love that. Um, and that's so interesting that you said you know, the standard, um, but you had a healthy baby. Um, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's the, but that is so hard for moms to hear Mm -hmm. because it diminishes what they went through. And I learned this early on in my therapy journey to use the word. And I had a traumatic experience Mm -hmm. and I have healthy babies. Um, so being able to focus on the positives, but not diminish the fact that there is there's some hard stuff going on. 
Um, Absolutely. Why do you wait six months postpartum to do a birth story listening session? Okay, good question. So it's not necessarily hard and fast rule. I've learned that it's a pretty good place to start. So what's interesting about sharing our birth stories is we tend to shift through many stages of how we will share it, what we will say. Um, We go through a bit of a phase of the social story where, you know, the person will call a week after the birth and want to hear how it went and we'll give some highlights and kind of that brief overview. Um, And what's really neat is every time we tell that story, we can emphasize things more. We can leave some things out. Uh, The emotional meaning of the story shifts. And every time we tell it, it, it changes a little bit. And we go through phases of organizing it, putting it in sequence, remembering it. Um, and then we go through phases of starting to, to give it a bit more meaning to our everyday life. Um, we can go through a very medical or factual phase of telling it, which is often where we get stuck in our culture. We are very fact-based, very, you know, how many centimeters, how many contractions, how far between, like numbers matter. It's, com- it's easily comparable that way. How long was the labor? Um, and people tend to often get stuck there. It's the easiest way to describe it. We tend to find facts very valid. So then we validate that version of the story. Mm. And a lot of people will have that as their final version of how they tell their birth story. And there's nothing wrong when there's nothing. Every of these stages we go through, every one of them is is very valid. And it is a stage that we have to go through. Um, but if we get to the medicine that's in the story, um, what we do is we leave behind, we start to leave behind the need and the feeling of, I need, you know, I need to be right, or I need to place blame on something. And that shifts over time. And we're not quite ready to do that at the beginning. Um, we end up coming into almost a forgiving and an embracing of what happened, even if the but is there, even if the and is there, mm-hmm. even if it was terribly hard. Um, so, and the other reason is that in our early months, if we're being listened to, if someone's sitting and listening to our story, every gasp and their facial expressions and their moments of disbelief and the shock on their face, it actually can all add to our trauma um, as we're describing our story. So, and the fact that it morphs as we pick up details, you'll hear your partner describing it. You might have a follow-up midwife appointment. You might have a follow-up OB appointment and they're describing it and you're going, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't see it from that way. And those perspectives shift our story. So it's a very fluid Mm. uh, thing, even though if you had a recording of it, it only happened in one way, suppose it, you know, you would suppose, but how we feel it in our body changes over time. So Mm, that's kind of why I like to wait a, a little while. Interesting. It's almost like, uh, just simply asking someone like, how are you doing? Some people, you know, give the very factual, like, oh, I, I am doing this, this, and this, instead of saying like, I am feeling, or I am experiencing Mm -hmm. this. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And if I go back to my story, which the listeners will hear after we chat, um, you know, I've gotten to a place where because my story is actually quite long and the complications post-birth were so many, it becomes very factual. Like, 
I'm able to mm-hmm. say, I hemorrhaged twice and ah, da, 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 da. And then I had this operation, I had this operation, and then I was faced with this and then I'm done. And there's no emotion in it. There's nothing because to put that in will take way too long to explain to someone. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, it's this, it's the same. It's like very similar to like just simply asking somebody, how are you? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and, and we'll often say, oh, I'm all right. Even if we're not, yeah. <laughs> because it's, you don't want to get it. Sometimes you're not ready to get in to the emotion with just the random person you say hi to on the street. Yeah. And because I make my life quite public, I, you know, mm-hmm. wrote my blog basically while I was still in the hospital. One, because I wanted to remember everything that happened. Um, and two, I wanted to remember how I was feeling about everything, but it made it quite public right away. And so everyone heard or read my birth story quite quickly. It was also because I was getting so many questions because we were in the hospital for so long and I was sharing while we were in the hospital, people were like, what's going on? What's, what's wrong? What happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't ready to talk about it. And I was just like, just wait for the blog. Like I, it's easier for me, it's easier <laughs> yeah. for me to share it this way. Um, and oh, when, oh, okay. When you said, when you hear others talk about it, um, you know, we'll sh- you'll hear in my birth story, or if you've read my blog, I hemorrhaged twice. And I say I hemorrhaged twice. When my husband tells the story, he says, I almost lost my wife. And so yeah. when I heard him talk about it for the first time, I actually felt the gravity of the situation versus, mm-hmm. versus just me saying, um, or diminishing the fact that I just lost consciousness and I hemorrhaged, you know? And so like, I, I took the emotion out of it because I was unconscious. I wasn't actually having an emotion during that time. It's only afterwards knowing and hearing him say that. And then the other aspect I wanted to throw in is I wonder how birth story medicine is going to be helping, especially mothers that just gave birth during a pandemic because we don't have a lot of people. uh, And uh, unless you're really good at FaceTime and having phone conversations with friends, like we don't have the community support right now. So, you know, know, and some people don't have doulas coming into their home because of lockdown or restrictions. I thankfully had a postpartum doula who was able to listen to my birth story Um, but some people don't. So I wonder how much bottling is happening because they're not able to share, Mm -hmm. they're not able to talk. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I can imagine it's, there's so much going on right now. And I also wonder if that, well, at least you have a healthy baby is being placed even more in people because, because there's so much going on and because, just going to the hospital, you, you know, people are having to birth, especially in the early days and ma- like wearing a mask the whole time and without even a single support person allowed in the room with them. So mm-hmm. yes, I definitely imagine there's going to be a lot more, more emotional trauma happening mm-hmm. over this time, unfortunately. Yeah. And I don't know where this kind of goes, but it just popped into my head. Um, it's the, the concept of, um, you know, different types of trauma. And, you know, no matter what type of trauma you experience, it's trauma for you. So 
if, Mm -hmm. you know, if giving birth in a mask is traumatic, allow that to be traumatic and know that that is, you're allowed to say, I experienced trauma because this, or not being able to have a doula beside you and not Mm -hmm. having, not Mm -hmm. having that type of support that can be traumatic. Um, to, you know, having an emergency C-section, like it, it, it's not true. You can't say like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't have a traumatic birth because this didn't happen to me. So you're then comparing your trauma to someone else's like you're allowed to have, you're allowed to have a traumatic experience. And I think that's really important for, especially someone who has experienced, you know, a birth story that they want to heal is acknowledging that any, any part of your story is you're allowed to want to heal it. You don't have to compare it to someone else's and say, well, this didn't happen to me. So I didn't experience trauma. Yeah. That's such a great point. There's no list of examples that need to be met. It's an internal feeling that we recognize and then often diminish if like you're saying, it doesn't seem big to other people, but Mm -hmm. you you can't ignore how big it feels inside of yourself. Mm -hmm. Like I keep getting asked, oh, you were pregnant in a pandemic. Like what was that like compared to not being? I'm like, I've never been pregnant, not in a (laughs) pandemic. So I, I don't know, but like something that's been really hard for us is my husband wasn't allowed to any of the appointments and he really wanted to come to every single ultrasound because twins get an ultrasound every single month and he wasn't allowed. And that was traumatic for us. And Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that that was taken away from him and from me and not just kind of sweep it under the rug. Like, Oh, but your babies are fine. I get it. My babies are fine. But my husband missed out on something that he really wanted to experience. Um, and we have to acknowledge that. Um, so yeah, there's that added layer of what's happening in 2020 Mm -hmm. and beyond to to parents. Um, okay. Getting back into it. How, okay. So you wait usually six months to, to do a session, how many sessions would you actually recommend, um, to someone? And I, I wonder if it just varies based on the, the trauma. It definitely varies there. It's very interesting. And I didn't believe it until I started practicing that in some scenarios, one session can really lead someone to, and you'll notice while you're doing the work, they, their posture will change. They'll have a huge aha moment and they won't have had that so far in their processing. Um, And of course, nothing can change, but it's how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. And that can often happen in one session, which is really neat how powerful it can be. Um, You can often tell pretty early on in the birth story overview, whether you might go to two sessions, just because if it's a fairly, you know, many, many complications or a really deep heart story, you want to offer the time. There's a process we move through and it can take an hour or it can take a few hours and it's not, you don't want to rush someone Mm -hmm. to the end because Mm -hmm. If they really need to sit somewhere, then you can let them sit there mm-hmm. and you can recommend having a second one. So I've never done it where I say, you know, tell me about your birth and we'll decide ahead. It, I, I prefer to start and see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. And then near the end, I would say, you know what? I think mm-hmm. 
you know, you've come a long way right now. I'd love to do another session, but I've never done more than two. So Mm. it's not the type of style of therapy where I believe if someone went to therapy every week, their whole life, it's a wonderful self-work activity. It's, it's a different style of support. Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, why is it important for women to heal their birth story? Great question. So I read once and there was some excerpts. It was really beautiful. And it was interviews done in like a retirement home or an old age home. And they would interview these people at given birth, you know, 60 years, 70 years prior. And we hold these stories our whole lives. You might have these, you know, beautiful faces light up and they'll remember that angel nurse, like you had one, mm-hmm. um, they'll remember their name still, and they'll remember what they did for them. And they'll still remember some of those facts and numbers. <laughs> and they often could also still feel a heaviness and you can witness that in a birthing person decades and decades later. So we know it stays with us our, our whole lives. Um, and the goal in attempting to sit down and really look inward and, and try to do that work to heal is that it kind of brings us to like, you could be in a P it almost like picture yourself in a bunch of pieces and you have to come back to almost the togetherness in mm-hmm. ourselves and find, find that compassion and the self-love and the forgiveness for what happened to us. Um, and an, even if there's no other births planned and that was your only birth you're ever going to experience, it is so pivotal and so important. And then I also have people who are planning a next pregnancy mm. um, or next birth and they, they find themselves in pregnancy or in trying to conceive like stuck with fear mm. of ever having to experience something mm-hmm. like that again. Um, so I did a session for someone and she said, um, you know, we're trying for baby number two. Even if I'm a little early, I know I might not have a choice, but to have another C-section, I'm okay about it. She, she really, after the session felt okay about it. Mm-hmm. And it was neat because I saw her again at a baby show about a year later with a new baby <laughs> by her side. And she smiled at me with this like fierce self-love and acceptance and didn't feel the need to tell me whether she had another C-section or a V-back or it was like the details didn't even matter anymore. She was yeah. in this like deep place of acceptance mm. that there is unpredictability in every birth. Um, so I found that really neat. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm like crying now. I don't know why I just thought that, <laughs> that, was, so, that was so nice to hear. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh, That was lovely. Um, Because my next question was like, how do you guide mamas towards self-compassion? So that's the perfect segue. Um, (laughs) um, Because that was really nice to hear that she was able to achieve that. So um, yeah. How do you, how do you do it? Give us the ins and outs. Okay. So like we talked about with postpartum doula work and the listening and and how the listening happens and whether you're just listening with compassion with your ears open or we tend to, to listen to answer in in our society we 
we have great ideas, we want to be heard, we listen, and we're preparing our answer, we're preparing our response. And in doula training, you learn a lot about just being very present and listening to listen. And when someone's being heard, to be heard without that other piece of, okay, what am I going to say? Do I have a really good response back? I, I need to have the perfect thing to say. It feels very different. So part of it is just the listening and, and the holding that space. Um, if I'm not, I'm sure you've experienced this in the past six months, often we end up in a kind of a story swapping between peers and friends. And you can all swap stories and you may all have heard some details about each other's birth, but you you all walk away feeling not heard, not having been heard, not having felt listened to. Um, so listening without all those explanations and assumptions and reasons, and that can be part of it. But the deepest part and the, the true finding of that self-compassion is within the storyteller. So we listen, ask questions to work towards a very kind of slow excavation. Um, and it's never us offering up. Well, what if you tried this? Or what if you tried that? It's very, it comes to the the teller themselves. Um we have specific ways of of guiding you there, but yeah, it's mm. it's very much inside of you as the teller, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. And yes, I experienced the story swapping, and it left me feeling very angry and frustrated because I went to a, a mama group, and it was um, just mm-hmm. three moms and a doula facilitator who is absolutely lovely. But our first session, everyone basically told their birth story and it came to light that every single one of us had been forced to have a forcep delivery. And it just made, mm. it just made me more angry that this is happening locally. <laughs> That's a whole other story, mm. but it just made me so angry because I, I didn't get any resolution out of it. I didn't feel um, like I was now sharing something in solidarity with other women. It just made me more angry that this was happening. <laughs> so I left, it, I left feeling it very fuel to the fire. Yes, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. and oh, your active listening conversation is so important because as a podcaster, I am horrible at this, at listening <laughs> because I, <laughs> I need to, listen to respond. Like I need to have my next question. So I've started (laughs) writing down what I want to say, kind of, uh, trying to do it really sneakily. So you don't hear me typing. And I try to like write it down so that I can be present and listen. Um, Mm -hmm. my husband will tell you that I'm horrible at this. I interrupt people. (laughs) I finish people's sentences because my brain's working that fast. And it's the most frustrating thing for him. He's like, can I just finish? I'm like, Oh, sorry. I thought it was just showing how aligned we are. (laughs) He's like, like, no, like, let me finish my sentence. I'm like, Oh, sorry. Like I, I, I struggle at this. I interrupt guests all the time. Like this is something that I'm constantly working on. And I don't think I've ever admitted it on the podcast, but I should do this training just I can learn to be a better listener. <laughs> um, well, I'm very proud of you for it's it's very hard to do, and it's really neat that you're. I've listened to many of your podcasts, and I I've never noticed that. I think you're an incredible <laughs> guest host and interviewer. Yeah. But I understand that feeling, and I I find I can put the hat on to be better at it in certain scenarios in my work. And I absolutely do what you're describing in everyday life too. It's, yeah. it's, 
to, t- to show someone we understand them by being able to finish a sentence feels great, but it's true. It's not what people want. Yeah, <laughs> they want to say their whole sentence and for us to listen. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just trying to show you that I know what you're saying. Um, I, I think I developed in the, it in, in the corporate world so I could prove my worth that like I, I knew mm-hmm. what people were talking about around the boardroom table. I, I, and I worked in a very heavily male dominated industry. Um, and it was like my way and everyone spoke over each other. So I just started to play that game as well. And now I'm trying to decondition that, but yeah. Um, so I wrote down, I understand that. Yeah. So I wrote down back to the nursing home and women talking about their story. So I experienced this concept of emotions getting stuck in the body. When I read the book, when the body says no, I believe it is by Gabor Mate. I don't know if you've ever read that. I haven't read that, but I've, <clears throat> sorry, watched many of his YouTube interviews and okay. he is just, he's so talented and I love a lot of his work. Yeah. So the book was introduced to me and I've talked about it on the show. I think ad nauseum um, is that, you know, when I read the chapter on MS, it described his MS patients and they were all very similar. They had similar personality traits and had potentially experienced a very traumatic um, romantic relationship in their life. And that had exactly what had happened to me and the personality traits were all Mm -hmm. the same. And I was like, Oh, like I had no idea that uh, experiencing emotions or experiencing stress in some way could affect my body. And years later I started working with, um, she calls herself a blueprint energy healer and she's a reflexologist. And the first time she touched my feet, she said, um, you have very strong warrior tendencies. And, uh, and she like, hmm. and then I described my alpha female brand and everything. And she's like, Oh yeah, that's the strong, like masculine energy that I'm sensing. Um, hmm. To go from there, we started talking about how emotions get stuck in our organs. And she had a chart, um, and I took a picture of it. She had a chart on her wall um, of kind of the cycle of emotions and how, you know, lungs, liver, heart, um, I think it was like bladder, spleen, like how each of them can be affected by different emotions. And mm-hmm. if we experience something and don't close the loop or don't process those emotions or don't process that experience, they can get stuck in our bodies. And, um, I truly believe that that is a huge factor for why illness develops in the future. So I think that's another important reason to hear, heal our birth stories is so that we can, you know, allow our, my therapist says like, allow your nervous system to complete the cycle that it needs to, so that it's not constantly firing, um, this fight and flight mechanism, um, because you believe you need to protect yourself now from everything that's being thrown at you. Yes. I listened to a podcast about, and it was a book, similar things about, um, I think it's called burnout and I'm ordering the book and it's about completing the cycle that we're meant to go into fight or flight. We're meant to go into those response states and then we hush it and we put it away and we shove it away and we, we don't go through the cycle and, and it does, the trauma lives in our body. It lives in our body and it, it's that emotional response is stuck there. Mm. Absolutely. I love that work. I love that. So I'm cons- I'm assuming, I don't know, but are you an empath? 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's actually yeah. So how good assumption. <laughs> Um, how do you take care of yourself as an empath when you listen to birth story after birth story and not, hmm. and not take it on yourself? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so good. So doulas tend to have, tend to have some, it's, it's so even talking about divorce chapter and MS and how there's similar characteristics and traits. It's, I did not know that. I'm going to look into it. I think that's so fascinating. So doulas tend to have similar characteristics and traits just in ourselves and who we are and um, kind of that nurturing role and the caregiving role and taking on a lot and wanting to support. Um, So as doulas and witnessing birth and witnessing trauma and witnessing systemic issues and it's you can obviously take a lot home and carry it with you. Um, and then specifically hearing stories where people are at a place where they even recognize within themselves that they need to be sharing that story and have it be heard and find healing within. Of course, these are hard things to hear. So very good question. Um, it's a lot of I guess the typical self-care stuff that I see a lot of memes floating around right now that you know, just everyday hygiene is not self-care for mothers, right? Like Mm -hmm. needing to shower, needing to eat enough food, needing to drink enough water. Um, So of course, trying to fit those things in. But for me, I do um, some meditation and yoga basically are probably the top two. And attempting in every moment to always practice mindfulness is probably my biggest thing that supports me through it so and that supports me through everything in my life I suppose mm-hmm. not just this work so I would say yeah, those are yeah. the top three for that's me good. that's awesome um <laughs> yeah it's, well it's always one of my questions to my guests is you know how do you take care of yourself at the end of the day if you've had a stressful day so um mm-hmm. that was, I just asked it in a different way <laughs> um <laughs> So for your, for the alpha female patients that you see, so the, you know, the ambitious type A personalities, do you always give them homework, um, to do kind of after the session, similar to, you know, what I, I did in, in ours, um, do do you kind of gauge based on personality? It's definitely based on personality. It's in the field and in my training, it's called anchoring. So whatever came out of the session, you want it to keep being present with the person you worked with. So some people are very artistic and to sit down and sketch and then to put that sketch up by their bathroom mirror in their closet. Um, Some people find there's often, if you can have something little to signify a shift. So if I do in-person sessions, I have little gemstones that have you know, if you believe in it, some meaning sweet stone and what it represents, and then they can choose one and take it with them. And I'll send them what the meaning of that stone was. And that can be their little visual reminder of the work they did and what they want to carry forward. And, um, if it comes that someone wants to make a shift in how they're viewing something in their life, and then there's an actual way that they could do it by we talked and people will hear, we talked about, um, where we had 
gave numbers to where we were, how we were feeling anywhere between zero and 10. And often we'll want someone, if you're at a five and a half to say, you know, what would get you to a six? And it's, you're having them think in a solution focused way for how, if I'm feeling at a five and a half for this particular issue in my life, what tiny weeny teeny thing could I do tomorrow that would make me to a six, for example, and practice Mm -hmm. that over the next few weeks. So often there is that piece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be sitting down and writing it, but if it's one little shift that they make and then they're often like you were proud to send me evidence of it. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's really neat to, you know, you sent me the little picture. So, um, yeah, yeah. There's always something. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so I listened (laughs) back to our session and there was a moment where you had me flip through the picture book of my birth. So going from the start to the finish, all Mm -hmm. these, all these little moments. And you mentioned that there's going to be you know, ones that I view as positive ones. Um, and you know, we, we touched upon, you know, the birth of Alora, the birth of Ryland, holding them in my arms. And then you had me try to see the tough parts as well. So you, you, you very quickly had me focus on the, the tough parts and pull upon, um, one of the hardest parts of my birth story. Um, so that we could address it, but is, and then, you know, we talked before we started recording, um, but is there any benefit in having mamas also talk about the positives before they get to the hard, similar to like a a sandwich method of constructive criticism, like positive, hard, positive, like, do you ever get moms, Mm -hmm. moms to focus on the positives too, because they're, they're too deep in the, the tough parts? I love that. I love that you brought that up. I I think it's something that as birth story listeners, we have to gauge with every storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, before we started recording, I've had sessions where people are, they know they want to be there. They know they need to be there, but they're stuck in the positive because it's really often how we, it's one of the ways that we feel like we must live to fit in, to be accepted, um, to be polite, to not ruffle feathers. And so we're almost stuck in that kind of toxic positivity where we, oh, you know, oh, this happened, but I'm okay. Or, oh, well, this was a great, you know, you can kind of hear it in their voice that they're saying a positive and then there's that, but, you know, Mm. that comes after it, or there's the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. So in the work, especially since it's an hour session and we work through a whole process, and since there's so many moments that you can often pick from, I tend to go there, but I, I love the feedback that, and I, I will sit with it of wondering how someone would feel to talk about some of the positives first, but I feel like it's often, it's so much what we're already told to talk about. Mm. Like we're, we're so expected to just be thankful, grateful that we have these healthy baby or babies <laughs> that we're alive in here and that that's all that should matter, but it isn't. So mm. it's give, it's really giving people the opportunity to complain and, and let that other side out. Mm. So, yeah. So interesting. And I keep thinking because I've been doing a lot of reading and just thinking about, I guess I never want to be stuck in a victim mentality. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I try so hard to, um, understand my participation in scenarios 
what happened to me that I couldn't control. Um, and then have, have those live either beside each other or together. Um, and mm-hmm. th- like that, you know, so that's really hard is that I, I don't want to always be in the, Oh, woe is me. This, and this, like everything that happened to me was out of my control. And this, this was done to me because I do, um, always take the time to say like, I participated in this situation this way. Um, and I'll use the example of, um, you know, the book that I wrote back in 2016, I wrote love, lost life found about my time in a very toxic relationship, calling off my wedding and then finding the life that I love. And I acknowledge my, my participation in that relationship, that I stayed in that relationship for X amount of years. And I allowed myself to be treated a certain mm-hmm. way. And I was also treated very poorly. And, <laughs> and so I, I don't, yeah. I don't take on a full victim mentality. And I think it's the same thing. Um, you know, I didn't speak up for myself in certain aspects of my birth. Um, and I could get mad at myself for that. And so that takes away the blame for what was done but there's the and there and the doctors mm-hmm. acted in a certain way that um, was frustrating and potentially allowed for some other complications to happen. So there's, there's that. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. not, a, I'm not a person that sits in toxic positivity and just trying to love and light the entire situation. Um, but I totally get that, that, you know, we're taught to, you know, potentially when we tell our story, be polite and not get into the tough parts and just be like, um, it was, you know, it was really hard. I was in the hospital for two weeks. Um, but I have two healthy twins. <laughs> uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, so I can get that you probably have so many people that come to you at that point and they've pushed down, especially if you're not talking them to them until the six months. So they've pushed down all the tough parts, um, because they're so used to telling just the positive story. Um, so that makes yeah. sense. Um, there was no question in there. That was just a whole bunch of rambling. <laughs> um, I love it. In our session and people will hear it. Um, you mentioned being mad at our bodies, um, especially based on my, my work with, um, living with MS. And I think that's mm-hmm. so important. Um, because I never considered, the aspect of like being mad at at our bodies for not being able to give birth the way that we potentially pictured and having that expectation around it. And I did so much work before my birth around not having an expectation that I was able able to easily move from decision to decision and not get mad in the situation. But then looking back, I know that my body wasn't ready to give birth. I was, you know, I was talked into having an induction, but there was no point in my story where I was, I was mad at my body for not being able to give birth the way that I wanted to, because there was all these external factors kind of funneling me into giving birth the way that we had to at that time. So mm-hmm. maybe, um, going back to some of your other sessions with moms that come in and are just so mad at themselves for, you know, if they wanted a vaginal birth and had to have a C- C-section, um, they come in and mm-hmm. they're, they're frustrated. So how, how do you work with moms like that to, um, to not get mad at themselves? 
So oddly enough, the work is pretty similar no matter where the locus of blame ends up. A lot of the work is to move away from blame and the self-compassion and self-love and forgiveness can be found whether it's for an external entity, an external reason, um, or whether it's thought to be internal. And especially I find when it's thought to be internal, there's that much more self-compassion and self-love and self-forgiveness that needs to be found. Um, because it will sometimes be, like you said, you know, why, why can't my body, uh, give birth vaginally? Like what, and the blame can go inwards and it's probably very, specific to each situation, very specific to every single person's personality of where that blame sits. And yeah, the the work is to help help move out of that blame and into finding all those tiny, like while someone's talking, you'll see it pop up, like these little tiny shards of self-love and self-compassion. And and it's almost like gathering it Mm -hmm. um, and helping them put it back together. So there's this really beautiful metaphor in birth story medicine and we're actually taught it first. We do a whole course on it first before we're even um, able to enter into the birth story medicine, birth story listening course. And it's called Kintsugi, which is um, the Japanese art of fixing something with, with gold instead of how we would tend to do in Western culture. If something's broken, a beautiful vase is broken, we would find a really, you know, nice, clear, glue, lacquer, get it put back together, make it, make it look like nothing had ever happened to it. Whereas in the Japanese culture, if a vase is broken, it's, it's a glue that they put gold in and you can see the change. You can see the journey. You can find new beauty in the process. So in birth story medicine, you find all those little shards. You can't add one shard of self-love before you've added the base one. You have to build it slowly. And once it's all back together, it's this kind of signifies the beautiful process of, of, of gathering all of the brokenness and putting it back together. And one thing that Pam describes, which I find really beautiful, is that once it's all back together, there's almost as if there's a new message on that vase or that jar or that bowl or that dish that was really important to you. And there's a new message on it now that you can now read that in the past you couldn't you couldn't see it. You couldn't decipher it. Perhaps you can understand it. You could see the words, but you couldn't understand the meaning. And that's that's part of it. That's part of the shift. And that happens no matter where the blame like, was yeah. once you find all those pieces. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting because it's also not diminishing the pain or sweeping it under a rug or saying, you know, after this session, you know, you're never going to touch upon it again. Like you've, you've talked about it mm-hmm. and it's done. It's acknowledging that it's always going to be there and it's put back together Absolutely. that you are, you, yes. are, you are whole, um, and you are healing or healed, but not without understanding that that still exists. And it's still good. It's still visible. Mm-hmm. It's still visible. It's still a part of you. And it's not, um, yeah, it's not diminished or put away. It's on, it, it can be on display. It's like, it's the ant. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, cause I think so many times, you know, we, we want to address trauma and then be done with it. Um, 
but it's now a part mm-hmm. of you for the rest of your life. And it doesn't have to be painful. It can show you what's, what's the new message that you're, you're, you're meant to learn from it. Absolutely. Um, okay. Changing kind of direction of the conversation. Um, but how many birth trauma stories do you hear are because of a broken hospital system? <laughs> this is <laughs> if my wonderful my personal listen to this. This is my personal my biggest test. <laughs> <laughs> my biggest test in birth story listening. Okay, so we talked a bit about this, and I think it's such an important topic. Um, and with my hat, so if I put on my hat of birth story listener and my training as a birth story listener, and it is so very common and there's nothing wrong with you asking this because it's so very common to sit in the place of, of joining up with the bandwagon, you know, everyone's hopping on and, and the blame is against the, the pieces of the story that added up to make it that it was your traumatic story. Right. So, and as a birthday listener, I'm trained to hear that mm-hmm. and guide you away from the blame and to not sit here and say, Oh yeah, your midwife, you know, like any time that I could blame someone, mm-hmm. I'm not helping you towards healing. Yes. So if I if I hop on and join and say, yes, absolutely, this, 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 and this were why it happened. Um it doesn't serve a purpose in in birth story medicine healing, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be addressed and isn't important. Yes. So if I had to sit down and track every story I've heard. I'm sure that a lot of them would have that as a base, mm-hmm. as a base reason. And then we work through the work and somehow, even with that being very common, these birth givers are able to find a shift and an aha moment and a, wow, I haven't thought of it that way. And a kind of a, a new self-belief a you know, because this happened to me, I am at first, they might feel, you know, I'm weak. I failed. I, they might feel some very strong negative self-beliefs towards themselves. And then these light bulbs turn on and then they think, no, I'm, I'm enough. I am okay. I am strong. I am it's something, something will shift. And anyhow, mm-hmm. if we sit for a while in the reasons and the what's and the how's and the why's and the blame, you often can't find the medicine as deeply. Mm. And that's part of why we wait a bit of time, like I explained earlier. But what I, I find so important is that if you could separate out, which is really hard to do, but if you could separate out the inside healing, the inside self-forgiveness and the forgiveness that, you know, this happened to me the forgiveness for did I speak up enough or why wasn't I able to advocate after all my prep and what all of that to find that, but to still keep another journal off to the side where you're writing down the things that you did find really unjust and you really want to work towards advocating change. Um, somehow to separate it out of it, which is 
very, very hard, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can keep going and let me know when I'm on the right track. No, it's, it's good. I'm obviously asking the question based on trying to get to a specific next question. So <laughs> my first story, m- most of the, the trauma and the pain I'm tying to a broken his- hospital system because I, because at the end of my story, leaving the hospital system, it was acknowledged to me that they didn't do a good job. Um, so, uh, for, for context for my listeners, the OB that gave birth to the twins specifically said when I was leaving that because of what happened to me and all of the, the broken pieces, my case was going to become a teaching case for the hospital. So they've acknowledged that something went wrong and it needs to be taught. Uh, the reason why I'm asking the question is because I have two hats on. I'm trying to personally heal my birth story while also wondering if there's something that comes out of it that I can now advocate for change in the system. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I tend to do this when I'm going through something I learn and then I teach. So I learned, I learned how to call off a wedding, leave a toxic relationship and find a life that I love. So I went through it. I did the healing and I, taught others, you know, just simple things that I did to find a life that I love. Diagnosed with MS in 2014, I do all the things to figure out how to live, you know, symptom-free, without disability, but something that I constantly need to take care of. I'm constantly taking care of myself. So I, you know, I can share that with others and I can teach that. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, Now the hat's on, you know, a twin birth in the hospital system things went wrong that potentially can be fixed. Um, so I'm, how can I advocate for change in the fu- future once I've really done, done the healing? So it, it's kind of, yeah. I've got this, I've got this hat on because even as I was preparing for birth, I heard birth trauma after birth trauma after birth trauma from broken hospital systems. So I was going into it potentially worried about what might happen. And the, the Mm -hmm. reason, the reason why I'm asking is because my next question is, you know, you hear birth stories, but then you're also involved in births. So Mm -hmm. if the majority of your stories are coming from a broken hospital system, how does that then impact your work as a doula, especially when you're supporting moms in the hospital system? That's where I'm getting to. So I'm not trying to like take down, okay. I'm not trying to take down the hospital system. I'm trying to see how it, <laughs> it informs your future work so that you can, um, help your patient, your patients. I keep saying patients help your mamas <laughs> and partners advocate yeah. for themselves in a potentially broken system that you're aware of because of all the stories that you hear. <laughs> my long, my long-winded question. <laughs> so as a doula, there's also another separate hat. I feel like things, like you're saying, you have your two hats and I completely understand that. And I feel like in my field, we have hats. And part of the hard you know, there's hard reasons and hard sides to every, every passion and every work that people do. And to be well accepted and in the auto area where I am, 
um, we have badges and we're part of, uh, a community of people who we have a certain set of standards that we meet and a certain level of training that we have. And then we have a badge that you can have on your, on yourself that would tell the medical team, this is the kind of doula who's not going to, you know, be screaming at the doctors or it's a very respectful relationship and it has to be to to be well accepted into that space Mm -hmm. and to maintain that level of respect in order to be able to serve our clients and be by their side Mm -hmm. um so there's there's these these walls and kind of these limits you have to live within in any field and so the work then comes from the prenatal education for how things are in in your area how what are what are the tendencies what are the things to pay attention to what are the it's kind of like the informed choice kind of model midwifery and to know to know your options to know everything so that you know what questions you you can ask to know what your preferences might be to know that it is going to be unpredictable and everything you know might plan. I like how you've talked about in the past of, you know, I didn't want to make a birth plan. I had my, my birth preferences because you know that you can't plan it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it is in the, the pre-work um, with the clients. And then in the moment in the advocacy comes, you can't advocate directly to the medical team mm-hmm. for your, your client, but you can be there by their side and, you know, looking them in the eyes and, and if it's, appropriate reminding them and saying, you know, this is really important to you. Are you, how are you feeling about it right now? Mm-hmm. And it can shift. It can absolutely shift from what they thought they might, what the limits they thought they might have mm-hmm. to what the limits they have once they're in a, an environment and a situation they've never been in before that could be, it's no matter how much thinking and prepping and talking and that you, it's going to feel like you cannot prepare for something big, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's also outside of the labor and delivery room and outside of that, you can also then put the hat on of advocate for change separately um, without using a specific client as like a case to make the change. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I So two things. Um, so the doula that we were supposed to have on hand, if, um, my listeners have ever read my story, um, our doula couldn't show up because another mama had gone into pre-labor the day before and she sent her backup doula who we did not jive with. And I actually sent home after the first day. Mm-hmm. So the, the day that we actually gave birth, I did not have any doula support. And I remember... Mm-hmm. When we first started working together, she specifically said, I can't advocate for you, as you just said, to the medical team, but I can remind you what's important to you and say in the moment, mm-hmm. you know, Robin, this is really important to you. Yeah. As like, how are you feeling about it? Um, mm-hmm. So I, did, I didn't have that, but um, I can only, mm-hmm. I can only assume, you know, hearing a lot of stories, you have a different lens of you know, if this is consistently happening to patients, you know, having that conversation ahead of time. So when it, that moment presents itself, you can either remind them or they're able to advocate for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. and then the second aspect in terms of advocating change after outside, 
um, going back to the same mom group that I was in, um, or one of our first sessions, a pelvic floor physiotherapist was there. And after hearing that, you know, forcep delivery is becoming a standard in this area, you know, she's now going to the hospital and advocating, um, for change because, because it's causing prolapses in every single one of her patients. Um, so, you know, she's not taking one specific case, but she's seeing it over and over again. Um, and she's, you know, asking how can things be done differently so that it's not causing future pain for her patients. Um, so that's how I, yeah, that's how I see kind of, you know, sharing, Mm -hmm. sharing these trauma stories and understanding how can someone then advocate change because it's happening to more than one person. And it's not just a fluke that needed to happen so that, you know, the birth of healthy Mm -hmm. baby or babies could happen, but it's something that may be you know, happening for sake of ease. Um, and it's causing pain and trauma to more women. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, okay. So we've been, we've been chatting for a while. This episode is going to be really long, but, um, I am, (laughs) I am excited, um, for our listeners to hear it. There's one question that just popped into my head and I think I'm going to need to put a disclaimer on this episode, but, Um, I remember as I was preparing for birth, I wanted to one know about all the possibilities so I could be prepared. But at the same time, um, every single time I shared on Instagram stories that I was hoping for an unmedicated vaginal birth, I would get unwarranted birth traumas shared with me. unwarranted. Mm -hmm. I use that word for a reason. Like I didn't ask to hear about others birth trauma, but when I simply shared that this is what I was hoping for and envisioning and visualizing, I would get knocked with someone's birth trauma story. And it just Mm -hmm. kind of showed me that there are so many women out there that aren't processing birth trauma appropriately. And um, are keeping it to themselves and feel the need to share it with other pregnant moms. Um, and I remember a pregnant mom reaching out to me after I had posted my birth story. Um, and I said, don't read it. Like, do not read it. Like it's, it's not as you're preparing for a birth. It is not the moment to read about birth traumas. Even if you want to be prepared, um, I think you're, you're taking on every time you read about or hear about someone's birth trauma, you take on a part of that, no matter how empathetic you may be or, or how much of an impact you are. Um, mm-hmm. so all that being said, um, how can someone work with you in the future to heal their birth trauma so that they aren't telling another pregnant lady about it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a great question. I find it's a very, I know we have many cultures in where most of us probably live. There's many cultures together, which is beautiful and wonderful. So when I say our cult, the culture, I don't mean that. I mean, it's something about the birth culture right now. Um, that the second you find out someone's pregnant, and I recall this, my eldest is seven, and I still remember almost eight years ago, it would be finally showing in the office and the belly is showing and 
it just floods at you. Everyone, your next cubicle person, everyone telling you, oh, my aunt had a 48-hour labor. And it's, it's, it's just a very negative aspect to the birth culture. And it, people want to share the worst of the worst. Is it to prepare someone so they know it can happen? I don't quite understand why it's so this way and it's so common. Um, I found and a suggestion that I often offer to clients in advance is to read the, read all the story, you know, read the beautiful stories, read the, you know, Ina Gaskin has a book of, of all really neat birth stories. And, mm-hmm. um, and again, you don't want to just cloud yourself with only the positive and say, because often if we say, well, that won't happen to me, you know, some people skip the chapter in C-section because they, well, I'm not gonna have C-section. I don't need to even learn about that. Mm-hmm. So we kind of push it away. Um, but the, the neatest thing I've learned about Pam England's work and, and suggesting to clients to read birthing from within is almost the idea that it's not, it's, it's almost something that we grow up thinking if I study hard enough, I'll get straight A's. If I work hard enough, I'll get the, like, we think the more we prep, the more we work, the more that we can, we can control the outcome and her work is a lot about knowing that no matter what you do, no matter what, there will be things that are unpredictable and the work is in being becoming comfortable with that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that doesn't quite answer your question. I'll, I'll keep going, but <laughs> that's just an important piece. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> it's about, very valid. It's not, <laughs> um, and then yes, about working with people, because if I could sit down and if other birth trained birth care listeners could sit down with every one of those birth givers who posted on those posts of, of your, you know, you're putting out this vision and building this, this idea in this beautiful, positive light. And we know through understanding how our brain work that our brains work, that that is a great way. Like it's, it's, there's nothing, it's very, it's wonderful to create and think about and envision what we hope will happen and what we want to happen mm-hmm. um, and not focus on the negative. So for all those people who are kind of saying, oh, but this happened to me and this trauma and this trauma. And yes, if I could sit down with every one of those people, <laughs> the healing, they're obviously still in a stuck place, right? Yeah. They the way they would write their answer, they still would have experienced their trauma, but the way they would have written their answer or the response or their comment on your post would be very different mm-hmm. after working through some healing and and moving towards the self-compassion and the self-love and the, the forgiveness and that shift instead of the blame and the warning. It's almost like we need to put up warning flags and, mm-hmm. and save everyone from their pain by telling them everything that could possibly go wrong. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't do a service, right? As you felt. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how can someone work with you? (laughs) (laughs) Find me on my website. (laughs) Um, So I'm sure that, yeah, Robin will put in the show notes, my links. So on my website at Intuition Parenting, there's links to all my services. So the one would be called Birth Story Medicine, and then you can book there and find 
uh, we could work online together in this current world. current uh, world. Um, <laughs> we can always work virtually, but if you're local, then eventually we'll also be able to work locally in person yeah. in Ottawa area. Awesome. I lo- I lo- we finally got to how to work with you, but I, lo- I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, I think that's, that's so important because it is really hard for people who, you know, I wanted to be prepared. So I also, you know, it was a twin pregnancy. It's called a high risk pregnancy and there's so many factors that can happen. So I wanted to be prepared so that I knew how to advocate for myself if it were to happen instead of trying to make decisions in the moment that I knew nothing about. Um, mm-hmm. and then after I educated myself on all of the different things that could happen, I had, I wanted to go into a positive place and mm-hmm. spend time in that area. So that's going to be different for everyone. So, you know, one of my best friends had no birth wishes, no birth pl- or birth plan. Um, she, she went into the hospital, the nurse asked her what the birth plan was. And she's like, you're it. <laughs> Uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's very different personalities in terms of how you prepare for birth. So I, uh, every, everyone is very, very different, but, um, yeah, I, I appreciate your answer in terms of how to find the self-compassion so that, you know, you, you aren't, um, putting your birth story on others or even being able to hear about someone's positive wishes without having that lens of like, oh, well, it's not going to go well for you because it didn't go well for me. So getting to that Mm -hmm. place where you can hear about positive wishes and nothing but the the best for them. Um, Have you downloaded the Work-Life Harmony worksheet yet? In this free guide, I walk you through how to optimize five key areas of your life so that you can start designing your own Work-Life Harmony. So from nutrition to supplements, sleep, stress management, and reducing your toxic load, I share tips and tricks that get you thinking on how you can optimize your life currently. 